Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Today, we tackle the topic of Social Security. My guest is Devin Carroll from the website socialsecurityintelligence.com. Devin, we're going to start with how on earth did you get focused on this particular area of financial planning? Well, it's a good question, Joshua. And first, thanks for having me. I've become a big fan of the uh, Radical Personal Finance podcast and have listened to uh, a number of those episodes while I'm out mowing my grass or doing something else like that. But, uh, you know, I, um, I realized back in 2011, uh, through a conversation with a friend, that after, at that point, nearly a decade of being a professional financial planner, I knew nothing about Social Security. And uh, that was not a good place to be, but I, I suppose I took some comfort in the fact that uh, none of my peers knew some of these things either. <laughs> so, you know, I felt a little better, but at the same time, I realized that maybe along that 10 year period, I'd given some advice that wasn't the best it could be. Mm-hmm. So I stopped what I was doing in my practice at that time any marketing efforts I was doing, anything like that. And I slowed my entire practice down to a maintenance level. And I went back and I relearned everything that I thought I already knew about Social Security. So I took this material with me on a family vacation. I would study it at home at night. And I still remember I was the scoutmaster of a Boy Scout troop. And uh, I took it with me that year to Camp Orr, which is a beautiful camp up in the mountains of Northwest Arkansas. And I sat outside my tent and study this material and trying to learn because to keep me motivated, you know, as some new runners will do, they'll schedule a 5K or a marathon. I'd scheduled my first workshop and I was so worried that I was going to be asked a question that I didn't know the answer to. So I poured myself into it. It's a similar experience to mine. I had been a financial advisor for a while, and Social Security is not something uh, that is – it's not really covered on any of the CFP exam to any great degree at all. Uh, I'm trying to remember if there's any questions on it. I don't think there was even anything on it, Uh, but maybe there's a couple, but not much. And I'd done various studied different aspects of professional financial planning, but similar to you, we never really got much into Social Security. And I had almost uh, the same wake-up call where I attended. Uh, my firm invited a social security expert in to give a, a seminar for our clients. And I went to the seminar and I was sitting there and the things that the presenter was saying, I just, my jaw dropped. And I said, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And I made a couple of commitments. I committed, number one, that I wasn't going to give Social Security advice anymore uh, because I just w- didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, uh, exactly like right. you. And I also got the kind of committed that I'm going to treat this more importantly because when you actually compare it on a financial planning perspective social security can be such a valuable resource for your you know for our clients and uh, so I've tried to do a little bit of work, but I'm especially interested in t- to learn a little, but I'm especially interested in talking to you about it because um, this has also always been one of my backup plans. Uh, I, and I thought about different models of financial planning practices that I could do. Uh, I realized that if I wanted to have a practice that 
didn't involve licensing, didn't involve any custodianship of assets, but yet it was still incredibly financially valuable uh, that I could do social security consulting. And I became convinced as an advisor after studying it a little bit that I would send all of my clients to who were in that transitional phase to retirement to a social security expert to sit down and go through their options comprehensively. Uh, and I said, well, if I, if I could send it to someone else, that's a good backup plan for me. So you do this professionally now? You do, you do a little bit of planning in this area? You do consulting? Uh, how do you work in this area? Yeah, so I um, you know, have lots of free resources out there. I'm a big believer in uh, giving lots of free stuff out there. And that alone will turn back into business for me sometimes. But you know what? If it doesn't, that's fine. But a lot of times after individuals will read my free resources or they'll attend one of my webinars or one of my workshops, they'll need to take a deeper dive. And when they do, I do offer my services on a consulting basis. And, uh, you know, you can access those right on my website. That's awesome. I love, I love that business model just because it's something that I've thought about doing. So let's dig into it. And the way I want to conduct this interview is uh, I want to start with from the perspective of the most asked questions and topics that you get. And then we'll drill down to the ones that you think are most important but that aren't asked about. Uh, so to begin with, what is the question or topic that you get asked about the most? Well, so when we think about Social Security, uh, I was actually taught when I came through with one of the big major broker-dealers early on to downplay the role of Social Security. And so I think that's the financial education that a lot of individuals have received is that Social Security isn't that important or you know things like, well, if Social Security is still there when you retire, Mr. Client, it'll just be icing on the cake. We've got a plan as if it's not going to be there. But the statistics are telling a different story. In fact, if you look at it, uh, retirees on average are getting 38% of their retirement income from Social Security. And I mean, that's nearly 40%, but even that doesn't tell the full story because when you really boil it down, that includes the Warren Buffett types and some of the big income earners. When you look at married couples, 52% of married couples half of their income from Social Security. And if you're single, it's even more. It's 74% of your income comes from Social Security. So I think the, the first thing, if I could make people realize anything, it's that Social Security is very important. And it's going to be a big part of your retirement income. So let's dig into that. I don't disagree, but I'm not so sure that that data implies the actual causal factor because most people would would look at social security and say yeah but the social security payment is only $1200 a month i'm not going to live on $1200 a month um, that's not going to be a big factor of my income. And if you're working at a big broker dealer, you're, you're trying to paint a, a picture and work with clients who are going to have millions of dollars. And so for clients who, are, who have millions of dollars invested, it is correct that their Social Security income will not be the major contributing factor to their lifestyle. However, my understanding of the data, and I'm again, feel free to contradict me. However, it's important to note that most people don't have money when they get old. And so for the majority of people who don't have any money, they have very few assets, their Social Security is the biggest factor in their retirement. As you said, 52% get half of their income from Social Security. But it's not because Social Security is so great. It's just because they don't have any more money saved. Is that accurate? Well, that's certainly part of it. But 
what's taking a lot of people by surprise is how much money it takes to create a stream of income. So, you know, if you go all the way back to uh, 1975, back then, 84% of private companies offered a pension. You know, so the good things about a pension, right, is income for life, and then it leaves some benefits for your spouse if you passed away before they did. Uh, but now, today, well, this the last number from the Department of Labor, I believe, was 2012, but it was 11% of private companies offer a pension. So that burden of providing an income for life has been shifted right onto the shoulders of the worker. And so now workers are retiring with two hundred, three hundred, five hundred thousand $500,000 in their 401ks, and they're rolling that over to the financial advisor, and they're saying, okay, uh, I need to get X number of dollars in income, and it's an unrealistic number. Right. So to recreate what the average couple is receiving in Social Security, you know, say about $3,000 a month, that's taking an enormous amount of assets to do that. And so relative to the retirement account savings that a lot of people have, it takes a lot to replace that. And that's one of the reasons I say it's so important. Okay. Yeah, I, I do think it's an important point, uh, and I think that it would be unwise to downplay it too much because the data does indicate. And I think in most of our ex- professional experience working with clients, for most clients, that stream of income, that steady, consistent, reliable stream of income is important, if not financially, at least psychologically. It gives them a, a tremendous confidence in, in, in some level of income. So it's definitely, uh, I'll agree, it's definitely important to plan. So what next? What's the next topic that you is most discussed or most requested of you? You know, in all of, I think I've, I've done somewhere around 18 workshops uh, on Social Security. We've had hundreds of people come through these now. Uh, and and the, the website is still growing. So lots of people consume the material that uh, we're creating. And one of the questions that I'm always asked is, Devin, is there really any use in planning for Social Security? Uh, Don't you think it's going to be bankrupt anyway and we're not going to get any of it? Uh, And so here's the thing, you know, as it relates to the future of Social Security, as long as people are working, Social Security is going to always have money. Uh, The issue is, I don't know that people like us are going to be able to get the benefits that we're being promised right now. Uh, But because of the way that Social Security works, there's always going to be some money flowing through. Uh, So I think if you're you're mid-50s or older, there's not going to be any problem. But if you're younger than that, you can probably start to uh, prepare for some change. So let's dig into that a little bit. When you answer that question, what data or, or sources or resources do you go to to give that answer that you just gave? You know, a long time ago, well, it wasn't a long time ago. It was um, 2007, I believe. <laughs> it seems like a long time ago. The Boston College for Retirement Research published a paper, and I'm trying to recall the name of it, but it deals with the future of Social Security. And even though there's been some time elapsed since they published that paper, the responses that they gave in there, I think, are still some of the best that I've seen. So that's where I formed some of my early thoughts about the future of Social Security and still 
you know, I, I use that and couple that with some of the new stuff that comes out and some of the new proposals. Now, we've heard some stuff come out since then about means testing and things like that. But, you know, some of the stuff that uh, has been around for years is still being mentioned. Okay, so I'll, I'll take the – and we can pretend I'm playing devil's advocate here. And you take the, the very strong pro-Social Security position. I'll take the very pessimistic view. Uh, yeah. Because there, without being devil advo- devil's advocate, uh, I, can, I can't stand the Social Security system. Uh, when I'm working – if I'm working for a client, it's my obligation to look through their eyes. And so I can wholeheartedly agree with you that Social Security is important. It's an important asset and it deserves good planning. Uh, but personally, if I could opt out, I'd, I'd opt out in a second. And I consider the whole the whole system to be immoral because it's you're, you, it's theft from some people at the point of a gun in order to pay other people. And so I just consider that entire structure immoral. So it's not hard for me to rent, move over into the pessimistic world. <laughs> so when I look at Social Security, I, I how, my my personal opinion, kind of the hardcore um, downer on it, is that Social Security will always be there in some form or another, but that it will entirely default because in order to keep it there, the uh, the people who are in charge of, of directing the numbers will have to completely adjust the system uh, in order to keep it going. And so Social Security has been bankrupt, what, four or five times already? Uh, completely, uh, completely insolvent and had to be readjusted systematically. And so along the way, they, they, it always is there. But because politically, it's politically impossible for a politician to remove the program. You have this massive bloating, voting block of older people who are uh, you know, systematically going to vote in their own best interest of receiving money. And so to attack that, as, as George W. Bush found, is the biggest uh, – uh, one of the biggest challenges that there's ever going to be. So I expect the politicians to work around the edges and – you don't have to stop sending out checks in order to default on payments. Uh, all you do is you make certain as- certain amounts subject to taxation. You reduce the amounts based upon earnings. You adjust it. You means test it. You move the retirement dates later. And these things help to keep you feasible, you know, on an accounting basis solvent. But in reality, you're systematically defaulting on the obligation. Uh, so, I think that's accurate. I think that's that's correct. What say you? Well, I, you know, I tend to agree with you, Joshua. I mean, the the promise that we have now uh, of that, you know, at our full retirement age, which currently for us uh, is set at 67, um, you know, we understand that by the time that gets here, that full retirement age will most likely be higher than that. So uh, I agree with that. Will there be some type of means testing then? Probably so. But Social Security as a system will be here. Um, yeah, and I tend to take a cautious approach when I'm planning for someone that's in their 30s, 40s. But again, I think if you're in your 50s and up, it's time to start planning and to get very strategic about how you do it, too. Agreed. So do you go in personal planning? Uh, and again, that's where I kind of went straight to the political argument. Uh, but with the practical financial planner speak, uh, do you go with uh, 100% of current estimates for clients age 50 and above, 75% for clients age X through X? How do you approach it? Yeah, so typically it's, uh, you know, a lot of my clients that are less than 50 will have a strong preference for not including it at all. Mm -hmm. And if that's their preference, that's fine. Because one thing we know about a retirement plan if you're less than 50 is how much it's likely to change. Mm -hmm. So 
if they want to exclude that and increase their savings, that's fine. If they're over their mid-50s, though, I do tend to have some real conversations with them uh, unless they have enough financial assets to where it's not an issue you know, to meet their income goals. At that point, if they want to exclude it, that's fine. Uh, but once they hit that retirement age, then we're, we're using real numbers at that point and not the uh, hypothetical stuff. But for your, let's say that I were your client and I said to you, hey, I'm, I'm totally in favor of Social Security, but I'm 35 years old. Uh, would you recommend that I include it at a 50% level of current benefits? You know, I think I would certainly have a reduction factor applied to that mm-hmm. uh, simply because most of the people who are in here doing financial planning at 30, uh, they're going to have some substantial means when they get to retirement age. And I do think that we're going to have some form of, uh, of means testing. Yeah. And to, to me, just from a practical planning perspective, I think it's valuable to plan there. When I was working with clients in that situation, I would many people, and it seems like now even the majority answer that I experienced is people say, oh, I'm not counting on Social Security. It's not going to be there, which back to the political uh, perspective, I think that's going to make a big difference in future years as the demographics change and we go from however many workers there are right now to a much smaller number. I don't have the data at my fingertips. Do you, do you know the number? Uh, of you know what? I don't have that uh, in front of me either, but I've seen it before, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's a shocking number. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll try to look it up uh, in a moment and see if I can find it while you're responding. But the data of the number of workers, so Social Security, uh, and again, Devin, you correct me if anything I say is factually incorrect. I, I, I'm not an expert in this area, but um, people talk about um, something called the Social Security Trust Fund. doesn't exist. Uh, there's no money set aside for Social Security. Social Security, the trust fund is full of IOUs. Uh, so there's not actually any money sitting aside. Social Security is paid as a, as a pay-as-you-go system, even though there are IOUs because the rest of the government has borrowed from the Social Security funding from times in the past when it was solvent. But under current under the current world, it's not like there's money sitting there to pay it out in the future, like a pension fund uh, has to have its obligations funded on an actuarial right. basis. Social Security is not right. that way. It's funded based upon the contributions of current workers to the elderly workers. Well, that is has worked relatively okay. But when it started, there was a, a very high number of workers, uh, excuse me, a very high number of workers to retirees. And as, as uh, demographics have adjusted, people having many fewer babies, uh, p- many of the baby boomers going through uh, old age, that number has changed dramatically. And in the future, it's projected to be even worse. And so as the baby boomers die off and as the voting block changes, the voting power is going to go towards the younger generation. And I think that has the possibility now is you know here am I I'm being a, I'm being foolish to predict politics decades in the future, but I think that as a dramatic possibility of the younger generation just simply saying we don't care what you were promised we grew up thinking there was going to be no promise um, so you deal with it and we're just going to vote some of these benefits out uh, I think that's possible um, that that'll happen that it'll, it will happen something like that in the future. Um, who knows? Uh, I just my point is just simply that the younger generation generally uh, thinks that it's not going to be there. Back to the the practical planning aspect. Before I got off track, uh, I had had many many people say to me, uh, "Let's plan as though Social Security is not going to be there," but they didn't have any money. And so what I did practically was I said, "Okay, tell you what, 
Let's start with planning with Social Security there, and let's get you on track, saving enough so that your financial plan, uh, you know, the charts at the end are going to look like green and not red for shortfall, green for yes, we, we think you're going to be there. And then systematically, let's go ahead and start pooling the benefits back a little bit. So if you want to go from 100% to 75%, you increase your savings for a year, a couple years, and then we'll go back to 50%, and then you'll increase your savings. And if after a while you're saving enough money to where you're actually going to be there, we want to get rid of Social Security, then we'll do it. Uh, but this idea that you're going to be able to do this without any Social Security and you're not planning right now, is it, it's a dream. It's not reality. Yeah, yeah. That's um, – <laughs> we'll have to see what happens down the road. But I absolutely think Social Security is going to be a part of most of our retirement incomes. And, you know, Joshua, I want to go back for a moment to something you said about opting out. We've seen some of the talk among candidates throughout this election cycle that we've been in here in 2016, and we've seen the proposal lightly floated about Americans should have the opportunity to opt out of Social Security. Uh, so let let me cover that just for a moment, simply because you mentioned it. You know, most of us think about a monthly check in retirement when we think about Social Security. But the truth about that is, is that it really offers a whole lot more than just retirement benefits. So there's benefits if you become disabled, survivor benefits if you die, and then certainly the benefits that uh, will provide some medical care through the Medicare system. But I think all of those offer some really valuable safety nets for risks that uh, could occur decades before you retire. So give you a couple of statistics here. 20% of all Social Security beneficiaries are below retirement age. And if you want to look at some of the stats on children receiving benefits because of a deceased parent, uh, one of the biggest categories, kids between the ages of 10 and 14. Last year, there were 467,000 children in that age group receiving a Social Security survivor benefit because one of their parents was deceased. If you add them all up, there's more than 3.3 million kids receiving benefits. So it it provides a lot more than just a retirement benefit. There's those risks that it covers as you move up to retirement as well. Correct. And, um, and by the way, I didn't mean to get into this like political debate. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's fun to have. And so I don't mind it. And I, I don't think my audience minds it. But I do want to get back to some of the practical stuff uh, in a few minutes. Um, but I'll just and I know you're not you're not here. You're not representing the, the Social Security Administration. You're just a financial advisor. Sure. Um, but I'm I'm pretty hardcore on this. I don't think I've talked much about it on uh, on the show. But my issue and when I've looked at it, um, number one, I, I have no legal option to opt out and not pay Social Security, uh, not pay my Social Security taxes on earned income. So uh, I could at some point, I could choose to become a tax protester and not pay those taxes, but I haven't uh, made that choice thus far. 
Um, but I do intentionally structure my income in such a way, uh, and I intend to do it more and more. I intend to structure my income into income uh, streams of income that are not subject to Social Security taxation. So whether that's royalties on intellectual property, whether that's rents, things like that, where I can avoid Social Security uh, taxes, because financially I consider it, it's it's a total it's a total losing game because every one of those benefits that could be provided, I can provide those for myself for a much less cost on a much less costly basis in the private insurance market. Uh, and so it's very easy for me to have life insurance to provide for my kids, uh, very inexpensive to do that. It's very easy for me to buy disability income insurance in case I become disabled. It's very easy for me to save and invest money. And yes, it's always possible that I might not achieve those things, but I'll take the risk. And, I cons- and, and the whole idea of me going to my neighbor with a gun and saying, you must pay for my children if I die, it's an it's theft. And, and so I'm opposed to it on a moral basis. And yes, it doesn't matter whether the gun is removed from me uh, by a couple of you know million voters and going through a governmental system and a police officer there is they're going to put them in jail if they don't pay their taxes. The, the point is, it's still the same thing. I'm, it's about personal responsibility. I'm, I'm a I'm responsible for me. So whether you look at it financially and just simply say, yes, those things are there, uh, but uh, or whether you look at it morally, it's not uh, – I'm opposed to the entire system. Now, I'm in the like, – the, I don't know what percentage of Americans agree with me. I would say it's well under 10 percent, probably a very much smaller under that. I'm just making these numbers up. So I don't expect my position to be influential, but when I come at it for me, I, I'm, I'm, I take a hardcore position. And although I haven't, uh, I haven't come to the place where I say, OK, I'm going to do like some do and not pay my taxes, I certainly don't approach Social Security as a primary uh, wealth creation machine. <laughs> sure. Well, and I don't think that it should be. Uh, but I do think that it gives a safety net. And, you know, in principle, Joshua, I agree with you, though. You know, being forced to participate in something like that, um, yeah, it kind of rubs me the wrong way as well. Uh, here's, some, here's some numbers, though, that I ran. And I know you're wanting to move on from this topic, but I had a uh, minister ask me. So ministers are one of the occupation groups uh, that can opt out of Social Security. And uh, so he came to me, he was a young minister just out of seminary, and he said, so Devin, uh, should I opt out? And so we ran some of these numbers. Now, uh, there's some out there who have some uh, radio shows and things like that who say, absolutely, it's a scam, you need to get out of it. So we ran some numbers. So here's what we found at the bottom of that. So for the average couple to replace Social Security and, and the Medicare that comes with that tax, you, you would have to buy life insurance. You'd have to buy disability insurance. You'd have to save a ton for your retirement income and save a lot to pay for Medicare in retirement, which is still available even if you didn't pay the tax. You just have to pay full price for it. So it's somewhere around, you know, for the average couple, you'd have to pay for life insurance, pay for disability insurance, and save around a million bucks. That's just to replace what Social Security pays. Correct, but how much? So take that same person, and and t- to me, we should disconnect the arguments because my argument is a moral argument. Uh, if that person was a minister, the Bible says, "Thou shalt not steal." So it doesn't matter whether I go personally to my neighbor, point a gun in their face, and steal their money, or whether I go through the use of a majority vote to my neighbor and point a gun in their face and say, "You need to pay for me." We're still dealing with the moral 
question. But from a financial question, how much – so as a financial advisor, that same person to that person on the radio who gives the advice, uh, if you took the same contributions that that person would be making towards Social Security, um, would you not feel more confident that you as a financial advisor, if they took all your advice, they could produce a better outcome on the other end? So, you know, I don't know. Right. And I'll tell you why. I ran the numbers and I have those numbers uh, in, in, a, in an article that I wrote. Uh, but I'm wanting to say that the return that we would have had to have achieved to break even was 5.9%. That's to break even, right? So uh, if, if you would have taken those same dollars and paid for life insurance and paid for disability and invested the rest and we could have attained 5.9%, you would have broke even. So how much is that risk worth? And, you know, I think, I think that's what's difficult. Now, I may be a little off on that number. I'd have to go back and, and uh, find all the data yeah. for that article that I wrote. But it's somewhere around there. Yeah. And, and I would – it wouldn't surprise me. Um, so – and I'll, I'll link to the article in the show notes if you send it over after the interview. Um, uh, and and we'll, we'll jump to the practical. But to me, the, the major problem – and if we look at things through a utilitarian viewpoint – meaning what's the best system for us to, to, to involve in, then that's where the financial arguments um, hold weight. That's where you say, okay, well, look, you're better off participating in the system over here. But I personally reject utilitarian philosophy as a, an appropriate philosophy. And so with the, with the Social Security system, it's not, uh, it's not, the, it's not the, my job to compel the government agents to care for the widow next door. It's my job to care for the widow next door. It's not my job to compel the government agents uh, and through the, you know, through the other, other people to care for my children. It's my job to care for my children. And so um, – when you start putting those things together, to me, the the compelling moral argument that didn't take place under the system of uh, when Social Security was put in place, it just came down to, hey, you'll get yours. But we've seen uh, uh, that 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 will eventually um, will eventually break. Uh, I did find, by the way, real quick, um, Devin, I did find a few statistics, and I'm just quoting. I found several charts, but I'll just read uh, a few paragraphs here from one. Uh, one uh, short article here from the Cato Institute. So Cato Institute, libertarian-leaning think tank, filter that. Uh, first, the current Social Security system is what is known as a pay-as-you-go system. It is not a savings or investment system, but a simple transfer from workers to retirees. The payroll taxes from each generation of workers are not saved or invested for that generation's retirement, but are used to pay benefits for those already retired. The current generation of workers must then hope that when their retirement comes, the next generation of workers will pay the taxes to support their benefits and so on. Obviously, a pay-as-you-go system is very sensitive to the number of people paying in versus the number of people collecting benefits. <clears throat> in other words, the ratio of workers to retirees is crucial to the financing of the current system. The current worker-to-retiree demographics in the United States spell trouble for Social Security and its ability to keep up with its promised benefits. People are having smaller families resulting in fewer new workers paying so taxes into Social Security and seniors are living longer and collecting benefits for many more years. Add to this the fact that the baby boom generation is about to retire and you end up with far, far fewer workers than retirees than when Social Security started. In 1950, there were 16 workers paying taxes into the system for every retiree who was taking benefits out of it. Today, there are a little more than three. By the time the baby boomers retire, there will be just two workers who will have to pay all the taxes to support every one retiree. 
Fewer workers for more retirees mean each worker bears an increasing financial burden to pay the benefit that Social Security has promised. The original Social Security tax was just 2% on the first $3,000 that a worker earned, a maximum tax of $60 per year. By 1960, payroll taxes had risen to 6%. Today's workers pay a payroll tax of 12.4%. It's going to get much worse. In order to continue funding retiree benefits, the payroll tax will have to be raised to more than 18%. That's nearly a 50% increase. So that that's just one article that I found. That's actually a 10-year-old article uh, but that was talking about the demographics. And I'll find something better and link to it in the show notes de- illustrating the demographic problem. And to bring this back in, Devin, to the financial calculation is you can go based upon the current system, but we know that there's a problem. So if you were to reduce those benefits by 50% for that, um, for that minister who actually had the option to opt out, <laughs> now what? <laughs> Uh, the, you know, now, now what rate of return does it get to be? Uh, and I, I guess I have very little confidence in the actions of a voting block as compared to my own actions. Um, yeah, so right. <laughs> go ahead. Give me your response. I feel like you're holding you know, back and trying to know. be polite and, and uh, feel free to just say, <laughs> frankly, what you think. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm always polite. Uh, but I'll tell you this, the, one of the reasons that I may not take too deep of a dive into uh, the future of Social Security and, and really get into the weeds on that is that most of my day-to-day consulting is with people uh, who are getting really close to filing or have already filed and have problems. And so most of my expertise lies directly in the, uh, you know, the thousands of rules that relate to filing and uh, prior marriages and things like that. Right. So that, that's, where, that's where I really bring the value. Frankly, I don't plan for uh, that many 30, 40-year-old retirements. Right. <laughs> right, right. So I agree with you. So let's jump off this political thing. And to those who, to those who love this kind of conversation in the audience, Merry Christmas. I hope you enjoy it. And to those who can't stand it, let's jump into the practical uh, because I thought this uh, – I did intend uh, to start to, – to make today's show primarily practical. Devin, what's the biggest practical question that you get? And my guess would be the age. What age should I take it? What's the biggest practical question that you get though? Oh, yeah. You, you certainly hear that, uh, you know, what age. But the other thing that you hear a lot about is uh, the earnings limitation. There's so much confusion about that, and it's relatively simple. So, you know, I'll never forget, I uh, gave a presentation to a human resources group, and this lady was in the back, and uh, she was in her 70s at that point. But she said that she filed for Social Security at 62. Her full retirement age was 65. Uh, But she didn't know about the earnings limitation. So you can only earn up to a certain amount of wages and file for Social Security before the Social Security Administration starts to withhold your benefit amount. So she didn't know about that. And she filed because all of her friends at her weekly bridge club meeting said that she should file as early as possible. Well, they weren't working. She was. And uh, she filed for Social Security and went down to the car dealership and brought her a brand new Cadillac. And she was going to make that payment with that Social Security payment. So sure enough, the first couple of months ticked by just fine. She received that benefit check, no problems. But then the Social Security Administration kind of caught up to it. And they said, wait a minute, you still have earnings reported here. We're going to start to withhold your benefit amount. So she had no idea. And there's people still quite often that I've run into that, 
just don't really understand the Social Security earnings limit. But it's not that difficult. If you file for benefits before your full retirement age, which is uh, for those born between 1943 and 1954 is 66. And if you're born after 1954, it increases by two months for every year up to 1960, at which point it's 67. That's a lot of numbers I just spit out there. But if you file before that age, you can only earn up to $15,720 for the biggest part of that. And if you earn more than that, the Social Security Administration will start to withhold benefits. So understanding that, uh, you know, you can't often just keep working at your job and file for benefits. It doesn't work that way. And I think that is important because many people aren't aware of that. Uh, and it definitely, uh, it definitely does matter as you, as you demonstrate it with, with your example. Do, and so the key data point is that's only applicable for those who file before their normal retirement age, correct? That's absolutely right. After your full retirement age, there is no limit on the amount of earnings that you can have as it applies to the earnings limitation. Right. So that's the important data. If you're going to file early, don't file early. One of the, the things, it's a good joke to say, hey, you should take Social Security as early as you can. I've made it myself um, just to kind of say joking, but it's not good financial advice. It's not good practical financial advice. If you're looking to maximize your uh, benefit from the Social Security system, um, don't just take it as early as possible, especially if you're still working. Uh, Devin, do you know when Social Security was originally instituted, was there a reduction of benefits based upon earnings or was that one of the patches that was put onto the system when it became insolvent in the past? You know, I'm pretty sure that that earnings limit was applied later. Um, you know, it's, it's not meant to be, it, and Social Security never was started out to be um, an individual sole source of income in retirement. It's a safety net. And uh, it was, you know, there was a generation of people who were living in retirement completely destitute. And so Social Security came about and uh, believe that earnings limitation came on later. Although I can't say that uh, with authority. Right. And I was trying to verify that myself. And I also can't. It's my impression as well. I do know that the taxation of benefits, which is separate from the reduction of benefits, but the taxation of Social Security benefits was added as a patch. I think that one came in under, under Reagan. Was that... Is that right? Do you know that to be a case? Yeah. So it was the, I'm not sure what year the taxation was added in, but I do know that that was added in later. Okay. And so, it's been changed since too. Correct. There's been, at first it was just a 50% and then there was another band added to that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so these would be uh, some of the important things that you need to calculate as far as the total taxation of your earnings and whether or not there will be a, a, a reduction based upon your other earned income uh, when you're calculating when to take it. What other advice do you have for somebody when, they're, when you're meeting with them? They're 60 years old. They've got plenty of options. How do you advise them to go through the thought process of deciding when to take Social Security? You know, so first of all, we, we throw away the old uh, when question, right? And we, we discuss more how. Now, up until April of this year, we had some pretty compelling uh, switching options and creative filing strategies that we could use. But those are gone now. But just because those are gone, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need to be strategic 
with the way we file Social Security. You know, one of the examples I like to use is uh, we have a, a, an IRS office here. And, uh, you know, I would never dream of just loading up all of my stuff for the year up into a big box and taking it up there and dropping it off and saying, okay, you guys call me and let me know what I owe. There's no way I would do that. But that's the same direction that a lot of people take with the Social Security benefits they receive. They just go on the word of what they hear from the Social Security office. And I think that it's important when you're getting ready to retire to have a very strategic plan. You know, just because you have a bucket of income available, it doesn't mean that you need to pull income out of it. There was an example that I ran for one of the workshops that I did, and I had a CPA come in and audit these numbers for me because it didn't quite look right to me, but it turned out to be accurate. It was two couples that had identical income. The only difference is, is that up front, one couple pulled out more in their 401k and deferred their Social Security filing decision. And then so later, they turned their Social Security on and they were able to pull out less from their retirement accounts. The other couple just started their Social Security when they could, started pulling out retirement accounts. But for both couples, their income was identical throughout the course of their retirement. They just came from different buckets. And what was interesting is that the, the couple that was strategic with their filing plan paid $32,000 less in taxes throughout the course of their retirement. And they took $43,000 less out of their 401k. So it goes back to those buckets of income and being very careful about how you're tapping those to make sure that you understand the implications of doing that. Given that example you said, was the optimal strategy to pull more from the 401k in the early years and to defer the retirement, or was it the other way around? No, so in this case, the optimal strategy was taking more from the 401k or these retirement accounts early on and deferring Social Security until later. And here's why. Uh, the American College aptly names this the uh, Social Security tax torpedo. It's because of the way that your income moves your Social Security through the taxation brackets. And so if you can get most of your income from Social Security, which only half of is counted, uh, you usually much better off. Interesting. Is there, this is where paper goes much better than a podcast <laughs> to get That's into right. the details, the numbers and the scenarios of a, a versus B. We'll just wrap that one up with them simply to say that it's a good example of a strategy that needs to be considered. And a major cost in for most retirees, one of the major costs in retirement is going to be taxes. And so doing good tax planning figuring out which buckets of money to draw, when to draw them from, is going to be a major point of optimization where you want to get good financial advice or you want to work through it carefully uh, in your specific situation. Absolutely. And let me tell you, there, uh, based on that, we did write an article that's, uh, that covers that uh, in detail. And uh, I'd be happy to send you a link to that for your readers. Yeah, do that. What else? What's the biggest mistake that you see people making when it comes to um, uh, their filing decision? You know, so I, 
I think it goes back to just going down and filing, not taking into account spousal benefits uh, and not checking for other benefits, especially with women, right? So here's the deal with uh, Social Security benefits and women. There, there is a bit of a gender bias here. Social Security is more important for women than it is for men. Why? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, according to the Social Security Administration, in 2014, the average male Social Security benefit was $16,398. Uh, for a female, that's $12,520. So they get quite a bit less in benefits. Now, that's because they didn't have the earnings history in most cases, and they didn't pay in as much. But in addition to having that lower Social Security benefit, most females depend on Social Security for a greater percentage of their living expense. Uh, this, again, it's that same report by Social Security. It says that most men count on Social Security, and this is among single individuals here, for 35.9% of their total income, but women count on Social Security for 52% of their total income. So it's, you know, it's important for everyone, but I think it's especially important for women and especially important for women who've been divorced, widowed, or remarried. They need to know their options inside and out because there's case after case after case of someone going down, especially if they've had more than one marriage and not getting benefits that they're entitled to. So explain uh, what the, the rules are with regard to a divorced woman uh, being able to draw on the earnings benefits of her, uh, of her ex-husband. Sure. You know, the... The length of marriage rules is uh, nine month, one year, 10 years. So for survivor benefits, if you're currently married and you, uh, you're currently married for nine months, you'll be eligible for survivor benefits. If you're talking spousal benefits, it's uh, one year. But if you're divorced, you could be eligible for either survivor benefits or spousal benefits if you meet all of the conditions. But to do so, you had to have been married to that spouse for 10 years. So as long as you were married for 10 years and you're not currently married, you can go back and let's say that you had three marriages. If all of those marriages have ended and you met the length of marriage rule, you can go back and pick the highest benefit from those three prior spouses. But you're only gonna you're only entitled to to draw on one of those benefit records. Just simply, you can choose the highest one. Oh, that's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I still remember Linda. She lived in an apartment complex not far from my office. And years ago, I remember these apartments. They were they were pretty nice. But time and I suppose the management of these apartments hasn't been kind to them. And uh, now it, it's not quite the uh, the environment that Linda would like to have. Uh, it's not exactly safe. If she goes in after dark, she had to go in with somebody to walk her into the door and uh, just not really a good situation. But the problem was she couldn't afford to, uh, to move where she wanted to move. Uh, but that was all a bit of a side story. She heard about my social security consulting and she came in to see me and we sat down and she was drawing benefits off of her immediate prior husband who was deceased. So she was getting a survivor benefit uh, from that husband. They were married when he passed away, and uh, the Social Security Administration looked at her benefit 
they looked at her survivor benefit and determined that her survivor benefit would be more. So that's what she started to receive. What they didn't do was go back and look at the work history and the benefit amount available to her from her first marriage. And when I talked to them about this, they said, listen, we, we will go back and look at prior marriages if the claimant requests us to. But otherwise, we're going to look at the immediate prior marriage and that's it. So she was able to go back and look at that prior marriage and see her benefit increase by $300 a month, which was enough to allow her to move to that new gated apartment complex that she lives in today. So for her, it was, it was pretty important. You know, now she has a little bit more peace of mind than she had before. And it was just because she found out one of the rules. And that to me is the biggest uh, thing that I learned uh, studying a little bit of Social Security uh, myself, never practicing in it to the point of expertise and paying attention to in some seminars that I went to. There are so many little rules which might not apply to other people, but might apply to you if you find it, whether which ex-spouse are you drawing on, the earnings record, are you drawing off of a spousal record and deferring your own, or are you deferring, you know, pulling off of your own record, uh, how long did your marriage last, uh, all these little things, and they can make a major difference in some situations, uh, and yet you cannot get, you, you can't get the advice from a social security administrator uh, for a couple of things. Number one, uh, they might or might not be capable of giving you the best advice, but my understanding is they are not legally permitted to give you the advice. And there are even some options that you can ask if this can work or can I, you know, for example, um, can I pull on my, what is my spouse's, ex-spouse's um, earnings record? What is their uh, normal uh what is their primary insurance amount? Uh, you can ask some specific questions, but they can't volunteer the information. And so you've got to go to an independent advisor or an independent expert, or you've got to read the books yourself and learn the strategies in order to be able to get the good advice. That's right. You know, they're going down the same road that the IRS is going down. In my workshops, I'll often ask people, how many of you have called the IRS recently for tax help? And occasionally I'll get some people that'll raise their hand and I can still remember I tried that when I was much younger, and uh, it was awful. Uh, you know, they want to direct you to their website, which is understandable. I, I get it. They don't want to take the risk of giving you personal advice. Here's the problem with their website. Between ssa.gov and socialsecurity.gov, there's more than 110,000 web pages. It's, it's drinking from a fire hose, and you'll find stuff that seems to conflict with other stuff, and it's just complicated. Right. It's awful. Right, right. Even just learning the lingo. Uh, okay, my primary insurance amount, but the spousal benefit, but wait a second, what is, you know, all these benefits. Most people, my experience has been that many people are not even aware that Social Security has a survivor benefit. Uh, and so I always used to show these in... Uh, financial plans for life insurance. And my financial planning software would made it easy to automatically include the Social Security survivor benefit for minor children. And so I'd always demonstrate that benefit. And people would ask me, wait a second, huh? 
what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, this is the Social Security survivor benefit that you can plan. This is the Social Security benefit that you're pretty safe to plan on. Like this is not controversial. If there's a death certificate for the earnings, for the, for the earner uh, and for the, for the wage earner, then these minor children receive benefits. Here's how the benefits work per person up to this maximum monthly amount to, regardless of the number of children. And here's how it works. And many people had no idea that they were even getting that benefit. So there's just a total lack of, of, of great knowledge. And even if people want to get the good knowledge, it's very hard to wade through the documents without all of the, uh, without all of the, uh, even the, the, the vocabulary. Right. You're absolutely right. So, uh, Devin, I feel like, uh, I feel like we, we had a great conversation, but we almost barely scratched the surface of, of, uh, of, of where somebody should go for, for good information. So when you set out to become an expert on this, how did you do so? What did you read? Because a lot of members of my audience are do-it-yourselfers, and they just want to know what to read, what to do. What did you go to, and what resources have you found to be the most helpful in your education? You know, so just browsing online, I found lots and lots of material that allowed me to um, to just get a very broad knowledge of, of what I thought. Again, I already knew. Um, I really think, though, for me, when I learned most of it was when I started taking questions and I would have to do some deep dives. The information is there if you know what to look for. So for the do-it-yourselfer, you know, there's a lot of great websites out there that cover Social Security. There's, there's mine, Social Security Intelligence, but uh, uh, Financial Ducks in a Row, uh, Jim Blankenship is another one that I go to quite often and read his material. Uh, there's a lot of people that write some really good stuff about Social Security. Have you uh, – do you have any books that you'd recommend? For example, I've recommended uh, Social Security Strategies by um, – I'm blanking on the author's name. Uh, but social, the Social Security Strategies book was extremely helpful to me. Uh, I studied it as far as my master's degree. Do you have any other books that you think are extremely helpful? So, yeah, there was one recently that was released. And I'm – you know, this is funny for me to recommend a book that I'm just now starting to work on. Uh, but the reason I'm confident in recommending this book is I've read her other material. Uh, and it's Emily Guy Birkin's Social Security Guide. And she, it, uh, it's uh, Making Social Security Work for You, I believe. And I'm going to feel awful if I give the wrong name. But uh, it is her, her most recent book. And I have started reading that. And it's an informative read that breaks it down and makes it really simple. Yeah, it's called Making Social Security Work for You. So I haven't read that. I know Emily, but I haven't read that. I'll have to ask her for a copy. Maybe I'll do, do a review of it. Um, well, awesome, Devin. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, I think it's a good exposure for people to uh, to the subject. Go ahead and share with us more. Uh, you, you have your website, socialsecurityintelligence.com. Uh, you have articles on all these different topics there. Uh, do you have any other media materials? And you also uh, tell us about your uh, personal consulting services as well, please. Yeah, thank you. So socialsecurityintelligence.com, lots of articles that's on there. There's also a webinar coming up. This will be August 30th, I believe, that is a deeper dive into Social Security for Women. And we're going to be talking about uh, women that have been married before, widowed, divorced, whatever the case, and making sure that you're receiving all of the benefits that you're entitled to. 
So that's going to be coming up, and I believe there's a way uh, right on the front page of that website to uh, sign up for that webinar. As far as my personal consulting services, that is right there in the uh, top right-hand corner of the website. You can click on that to get more information, and it'll tell you how to get in touch with me if uh, you've read through the website and you need a, a little bit more information there. So, Devin, if, you, yeah. if, I, if I made you king of emperor of the world and I said you got to fix Social Security, what would you do? <laughs> well, it, we, we may be going back to the uh, to the political conversation here. That's okay. Uh, if you, <laughs> you know, so here's the thing: we know that once you boil everything down, there's only two ways to fix it. There's either a benefit decrease or a tax increase. Um, one of those two things, and probably a combination of those two, are going to happen. So, you know, I don't how I would fix it. Um, you know, I'm just not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, you've got to practice to maintain. You can't, you can't anger everybody like I can. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very good. Very politically astute of you. Devin, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Joshua, thank you for interviewing me today. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Radical Personal Finance. If you're interested in building financial freedom for yourself and your family, please subscribe to the podcast with our free mobile app, so you don't miss a single episode. Just search the App Store on your mobile device for Radical Personal Finance and download our free app, which also contains an archive of every past episode of the show. If you have received value and financial benefit from the content of today's show, please consider becoming a supporting patron. Radical Personal Finance is listener-supported, and it's your direct financial support which enables me to bring you this content. In addition to your voluntarily paying for the content you've just heard, as a supporting patron, you will receive a number of member-only benefits, including a private Facebook group, access to our weekly Q&A calls, and discounts on future products and services. Details can be found at RadicalPersonalFinance.com patron. Again, RadicalPersonalFinance.com patron.